Hey everyone, it's Natalie here, and thank you for joining me in this week's episode. My guest for today is Dr. Anita Johnston. Anita is a clinical psychologist and a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor. She has worked in the field of women's issues and eating disorders for over 35 years. She is currently the clinical director of an eating disorder treatment center called IPONO in Hawaii. Anita is also the author of the best-selling book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, and the co-creator of the Light of the Moon Cafe, a series of online interactive courses designed to support women from all over the world with their eating difficulties. You guys, I can't wait for you to dive deeper into this podcast because this episode is just filled with so much wisdom and goodies and gems. I feel really humbled, excited, and just grateful that I got to speak with Anita because her book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, was a huge game changer in my own recovery and continues to influence the way that I practice as a psychologist today. So go ahead and grab yourself a cup of tea, get all comfortable as you listen to this podcast. As always, my hope and wish is that this conversation will nourish you and bring you the healing that you need. So, welcome Anita. I'm so glad to have you on my podcast. Nice to be here. Yeah. So I thought, you know, we could start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself who you are, and what really brought you into this work? That's mm, a long story. I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a clinical psychologist. Especially, I've always specialized in uh, women's issues in particular. Uh, but my background, I have a background in storytelling just because I grew up on the island of Guam in a multi ethnic, multicultural family, and stories were a big part of that. And I actually, I got involved with eating difficulties back in 19, the early 1980s, when I had a, a psychology intern who was studying the incidence of eating disorders in Hawaii. And we would get together to talk about this. And we were joined with a social worker who had recovered herself from an eating disorder, but she had had to figure it all out herself. And so every time we would get together, we would say, oh, there's really a problem here in Hawaii. And after, there should be a center for this. And after about the fifth time, we looked at each other and we laughed and we went, okay, I guess we're it. And so we created a center. And it was one of those things where you create it and they, they come. And that's what happened. We had girls and women of all ethnicities, all sizes, all ages, all different kinds of struggles around eating and body image. In those days, no guys showed up. And so that was really the beginning of my getting very curious about well, why is it, um, first of all, why is it females that are showing up? Second of all, why these particular girls and women? 
And thirdly, why, why was the struggle around eating and food and body? And so that began all those years ago. And so I've continued to just explore that. It's fascinating to me. I, that's when I, I first wrote my book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, um, as a way to help my clients understand because they were asking me, well, where can I read more about this? And well, that hadn't been written. And then after I started, I started opening uh, centers, programs uh, in Hawaii, in Tennessee, in uh, Australia, uh, all over the place. And then doing a lot of teaching and training and helping people understand what, what the invisible issues are beneath mm. the struggle with eating and food and body. Okay. And I still do it. <laughs> I mean, right now I, I have my online program, the Light of the Moon Cafe. And so uh, it's, it's come in very handy, especially with COVID because I can't travel any longer. So I still get to work with people from all over the world. And mm. um, it's, I love it. That's amazing. And, you know, since the 1980s, that's a long, feels like a long time. That seems, seems like a long time ago. And, you know, back then, I wasn't even born then, 1980s. So I'm just thinking, wow, like how, how did it, what, so there was a need, obviously, for, for this work. But how did you discover this approach? Because I think back then, little was known about eating disorders, eating difficulties, and there were little treatments that were particularly catered for this population of um, people. So how did you then start to piece together a program and a way of working with, with them? Well, I had to figure out myself. You're right. And there were, there were very few... Um, treatment programs. Um, Back then, it was mostly a hospital-based approach, which ended up being a revolving door because they simply um, looked at the symptomology and not what was driving the behaviors in the first place. And so, of course, someone could go in hospital and then the behaviors would stop and then they get discharged and, and then everything picks up. And so I started to see that it's sort of like a weed if you just cut it off at the top, given the right circumstances, it's going to grow right back. But if you can go down and get the root issues, then it's a done deal. And so I started to think, well, okay, what are those root issues? And I, you know, like I said, I have a background in, in storytelling, but as a psychologist, I'm a story listener first and foremost. So I decided to listen as carefully as I could to what the stories were that people were telling me that were struggling. And I was looking for the common denominator. What mm-hmm. is it? What, what is it? And what I discovered is that these girls and women who were, who were seeking help, they were like the child in the fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. And of course, because I'm a storyteller, I have to tell you that story. Please. There was once yeah. this, this emperor, and um, he didn't care much about ruling his kingdom. He was mostly interested in fine clothing and jewelry, and he had a reputation for this. And so a couple of con artists came into town, and they pretended to be tailors. But they told the emperor, oh, our clothing is so fine, only those fit for their station in life can even see it. 
And so this impressed the emperor. So he commissioned a whole new wardrobe for himself. And the con artists, they pretended to stitch and cut cloth that really wasn't there. But all the people who worked for the emperor carried on about fabulous new outfits because they didn't want to lose their job. And the emperor himself oohed and awed because he didn't want people to think he wasn't fit for his station in life. So the con artists eventually, they laughed, left town, and they laughed all the way to the bank. And then there was this grand procession where the emperor was wearing his new outfit. And all the townspeople oohed and awed about how amazing his clothing was, even though he was totally naked. But there was a child in the crowd that said in a very loud voice, but mommy, the emperor has no clothes on at all. And when this child spoke, it created a ripple throughout the crowd and everyone saw the emperor for the fool that he was. So what I discovered is that these girls and women were like the child in that fairy tale in the sense that they um, were very emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive and had an uncanny ability to perceive realities that others might not be able to so easily. Mm -hmm. But because their lives weren't fairy tales, whenever they spoke up about what they were seeing, um, they were either ignored, maybe they were rejected, in some instances ridiculed, and maybe even in some instances abused. So they were, what I discovered is they were thin-skinned by nature, which I, I think is not a bad thing. Uh, because if you're highly sensitive, uh, what that brings with it is a level of empathy and compassion that our world needs a lot of today. However, if you are thin-skinned like that, um, what that, what that means is that you have to find some way to navigate in a world that doesn't value that, that says, oh, get over it already. You're too sensitive. Um, um, uh, stiff upper lip. Uh, mm. What's wrong with you? Uh, you're making too big a deal out of this. And so you have to find some way to navigate. And what these girls and women discovered is that one of the ways they could dim their light, diminish their capacity to perceive these subtle realities was by focusing on food and weight and fat and eating. So if you can imagine the way it works, because it does work, if you're driving down a road and you've been down this road hundreds of times, but this time you're either starving or on a weight loss diet, which is the same thing. What's gonna get your attention? Well, every restaurant you might pass by, every fast food place, because your body is starving. And so the way that this works, let's say you have a more complicated issue you're struggling with, maybe a love-hate relationship with your mother, or maybe your boyfriend just ditched you, or, or maybe you're on a career track that doesn't really suit you. Um, these, these require a set of complex skills to resolve, but if you can convince yourself, oh, oh, I know what the problem is, because you can feel, if you're sensitive, you can feel something's not right, but I know what the problem is. I like food too much. I know what the problem is. I'm too fat. I know what the problem is. I, I need to lose weight. And then that gets all of your attention, 
And this other stuff that has really been problematic fades into the background. And that's how um, disordered eating can become very addictive in nature because it never really solves the problem. So you keep doing more and more and more and mm-hmm. more of it. And, uh, you know, hearing you um, share the story, which I've heard many times because I've listened to so many of your talks, right? You, you talk about the idea of the red herring, right? How these addictive food behaviors are a distraction from what's really going on underneath the surface. And I see this a lot both in my practice and the people that I see, it's so easy to focus and get lost in the binging, the purging, um, the feeling of fatness because they're very concrete, right? And very, very, li- they're literally the problem that presents itself. And can you can you talk about some ways that you approach um, these rigid, concrete behaviors? Yeah, what what's what has worked? What have you seen over the years? Yeah, I think you, you, you're right in that the problem is that the focus is on what is literal, what is concrete, what we can see with our outer eyes, when that's not going to get someone where they want to go because you have to start to see with your inner eyes. That's what we call insight. It has to do with looking within because the answers for anyone struggling to recovery are inside of them. They're not out there somewhere with with, um, some sort of recipe, but it's a matter of, okay, how do you access them? How do you get to that part? And that is why I use a lot of storytelling. I use a lot of metaphor because that sort of takes the spotlight and turns it inward. And it also actually uses a different part of the brain. So so in our modern, um, literal, concrete culture, what has happened is we've become way more left brain dominant. And so uh, when I tell a story or when I use a metaphor, I'm activating a different part of the brain, which is more useful because, um, you know, no one wants you to come in and take away their eating disorder. I mean, they think they do, but they really don't because... It, it is serving a function. It has a job to do. And at some level, somebody understands that. So, And I understand that, too. So um, I don't try to get rid of someone's eating disorder because I can't, <laughs> for starters. So why do something I can't do? But the truth of the matter is it's sort of like walking into a dark room. You don't try to get rid of the darkness. You turn on the light. And so what I see my job is, is to, to turn on those lights because that illumination is what's going to dispel the eating disorder because people think it is one thing when really once you turn the lights on, um, you get to see that it's something else and that it has a job to do. And if you can discover what that job is, then you can put it out of a job. By, by mm. accomplishing uh, that in another way. Mm. So I know some of the people who are going to be tuning in are behavioral psychologists. Yeah, so they approach treatment in a very um, different way. They may not be all too familiar with this approach of storytelling. It may seem a little bit abstract. And I mean, I get it because your stories have really helped me and I and illuminate um, certain areas in my life. 
So, you know, let's say if there was an individual who was really struggling with um, a raging eating disorder, yeah, um, and at the moment the priority for them is for them to reach a healthy weight because they are very malnutrition. And, you know, some might argue saying that, okay, in this state of being, this person may not be cognitively able to process and take in the information um, that we're presenting them through story or through um, compassionate conversation. So what, what, what would you say to that? Well, first of all, it's a little black and white. Um, uh, yes, it's true. When you are medically compromised, when you're nutritionally compromised, you can't process information as easily, but you can process some information, right? Yes. And storytelling is, that's why children are told stories. It's easier to get that information in through a story. And so, of course, if somebody is, is compromised in that way, they need to be treated for that but that's not the only thing you do, right? right. Why can't you, um, you know, focus on restoring nutritionally, restoring physically? I mean, that's what we do in my treatment center in Ipono in Maui is, of course, we get people that are compromised. But we don't just sit them down and have them eat and that's it, <laughs> right? Yeah, that no, doesn't work. So they, they, there's way, way, way more. There's a lot you can do. And it's not an either-or situation. And so the reason why stories, for example, have been used forever, that's why, why the Bible uses stories, that's why it's because it makes information accessible and, um, and people retain it. Yes. Now, you take somebody who is compromised, trust me, they have all kinds of stories that they're running. Oh, if I eat this, I'm going to get fat. Oh, if I start eating, I'll never be able to stop again. Those are stories. Mm-hmm. And what's really helpful is to find out, oh, where did you get that story? You went to little bit of little bitty baby wiggling your toes and 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 seeing a little roll on your leg and go, oh my god, I can't I can't have any more milk because I'm going to get fat. No, we're not born with these stories. And so, so for me, uh, it, it's very useful to work with stories while you're doing other things. Mm-hmm. So of course. Cognitive behavioral therapy is important. That's good therapy. But if you think that that's all there is to the human being, you're missing a big part of the picture in my mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm not and I don't discourage that at all. Again, in my treatment center, of course we use cognitive behavioral therapy. In my work at the Light of the Moon Cafe, I use a lot of those concepts. Um, to help people understand their own thought processes and how that affects their behaviors. Uh, uh, you know, it's like you, you do it all. Mm. So it's interrogative. It's not just, we're just using stories and metaphors. It's really holistic, what you're talking about here. Oh, absolutely, because these are complex um, problems. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for me, it's sort of like throw spaghetti at the wall. Let's see what sticks. Because not only are eating disorders in and of themselves complex, each individual is unique unto themselves. And that's one of the problems with using a recipe is that in some ways the person can't 
can, not always, but they can feel dehumanized by it. Mm. Like, oh, okay, one size fits all? Mm. Not quite. So I want to dive a little bit into this quote that came from one of your blog posts. So you said, I found that there was indeed great meaning behind the foods and eating behaviors each woman struggled with, and that uncovering that meaning was an incredibly important step on the road to recovery. So can you talk a little bit more about the meaning behind the behavior um, that we've been talking about, really? Yeah, let me tell you how I came to that. Yes. Uh, when I was in graduate school, and I think it was probably one of my first courses I walked into, and there was a little old man, and he was speaking in a thick accent, and I kept telling myself, okay, he said, really listen, I had just come from Guam, right? So I'm going, okay, this is an accent you're not familiar with. And that man turned out to be Victor Frankl, who um, he wrote Man's Search for Me. He became very... Did you know it? Did you know it at that time that that was the Victor, no. Victor Frankl that I was speaking? No, Victor, I knew nothing. I was just, I'd come from Guam. Oh. I'd come from graduate school. I, you know, I was pretty naive. Um, and it really wasn't until later that I understood that this person whose, whose courses I just loved and I was so taken by, uh, you know, for, for your listeners, if they don't know, um, he was a psychiatrist in the Nazi prison camps during World War II. And basically what he discovered is that you can be stripped of everything, everything you've ever felt dear to your heart, but there's one thing that can never, ever, ever be taken away from you. And that one thing is the meaning you give to your experience. And in that meaning lies your freedom. Mm. So here I am working with people who are trapped well, by an eating disorder. And I realized, yeah, if they could find the meaning, uh, because the meaning, the, I, what the idea they have, the story they have is there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm damaged yes. in some way. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that even say you can never recover, which is absolutely untrue. I, you know, I've been doing this for 35 years. I've seen thousands and thousands of people totally, completely recover, recovered, period. Um, and so I know that that's, that, that it's possible, but a large part of that recovery has to do with shifting the meaning away from there's something wrong with me mm-hmm. to I'm engaging in behaviors that are trying to fulfill a function. What might that be? And mm-hmm. so when you look more closely at what someone's doing with food with an eye to the meaning of it, 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 what you start to see is astounding. So, for example, uh, somebody who is restricting their food, that is not the only thing they're restricting in their life. They're restricting their emotions. They're restricting new experiences. They're restricting their, their sexuality. Yes. They're putting themselves on restriction if mm-hmm. they make a mistake. Mm-hmm. So, really, there's this theme of restriction. It shows up with food and it gets our attention because it's dangerous. But it's everywhere. And so if you start to uh, look at that and explore what that's about, um, it can have a profound effect on what they're doing with eating. Mm-hmm. Someone who's binging and purging, they're not just doing that with food. They'll sign up for a gazillion classes, and then it's too much, and they drop out of school. Or they might um, go shopping and not be able to decide, and they buy everything and then end up taking it back. 
or they may meet someone and fall in love and, and then the minute there's a problem, I'm out of here. Or they'll start a gazillion projects and then uh, get overwhelmed and drop them all. So mm. this process of binging and purging is everywhere. Mm. And if you start to see, okay, there's a pattern. Let's see what that's about. Because with the restriction, there's there's this um, um, too muchness, right? That's why you restrict. Life is too much or I am too much. With, with binging and purging, it's this thing of taking in too much too quickly, not being able to assimilate it, I have to get rid of it all. Mm. With, with binge eating or compulsive eating or yo-yo dieting, what you see is, is this theme of scarcity is everywhere. It's not just not enough food, but there's not enough time. There's not enough attention. There's not enough money. There's not enough coffee. Um, this not enough becomes the theme or I'm not enough. Mm. So if you can zoom the lens way out, you start to see patterns and the patterns can help inform the meaning. Just like the foods someone is struggling with can point you towards that meaning. Tell us a little bit more about that because that's so interesting. The the parallels between salty foods, sweet foods, and the emotion that that connects. How did you discover that? I mean, that when I first came across, you know, um, cracking your hunger code, I was like, "Whoa, this is so fascinating and so cool." And yeah, so please tell us a little bit more about. Well, again, I discovered it by just paying attention to and and listening very carefully to what my clients were saying or what they were struggling with and seeing the parallels in their own life. And so pretty much now everybody is different. But what I found is there's these primary categories you can begin with because foods speak to us and for us, but they don't use our everyday language. They use the language of metaphors, just like our dreams speak to us and for us, but they use metaphoric symbolic language. So we often miss, we don't get the message, right? Mm. And it's the same with eating. And so what I discovered is struggling with sweet foods usually has to do with either not having enough sweetness in your life or feeling like you're not sweet enough. Crunchy, salty foods are usually connected to unexpressed anger and frustration. Warm foods like soups and stews are often connected to a craving for emotional warmth. Spicy foods are related to either a fear of or a desire for more excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate, everyone knows this from Valentine's, right? That's that's love and it's romance and sensuality and sexuality. Now, everyone's different, but these are categories you can use to get started with. And if any of your listeners want to do that, they can go to my site, lightofthemooncafe.com. There's a quiz you can take. Uh, and there's also um, uh, the food and metaphor guide. It's free. You can just download it. So you don't have to scribble down what I just said. Uh, you can just go to lightofthemooncafe.com and get the food and metaphor guide and see for yourself. Awesome. So I am going to ask... Um, be a little bit of a devil's advocate here and ask has any have you met anyone who just found this explanation or just does not resonate with this approach 
Of course. Um, this is not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, there are those that's, that say, just give me the recipe and I will do it. There are people that are not interested in um, cultivating a stronger sense of themselves. They just want to get by. And that's fine, as far as I'm concerned. The, the recovery journey is like a train, and you can get off at any, at a, any station that you want. Um, but what I have found is there are those that say, I want to clear this totally, completely from my life once and for all. Mm. And though they're typically the ones that are willing to appreciate this as a mystery, but it's a mystery that they can solve. Mm. And to look a little bit deeper, right? Mm. To look beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you often speak about is that a full recovery is possible. Recovery, um, you can do it period, right? So how would you define recovery? Because that word is so subjective and it differs from person to person. So what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is it's not that you never eat when you're not hungry, okay? We're not talking about perfection because, um, um, you know, there's always times that you're, you know, if you're at a birthday party and there's birthday cake and but you're full you may choose to have that birthday cake to to participate in the celebration there's nothing wrong with that so so basically what recovery is is when food does not interfere with you living the life you want for yourself Mm. basically what it looks like is that you you um, are able to express your authentic self, um, your feelings, your thoughts, um, and have sovereignty, which is the right to create your, the path through your own life. Mm-hmm. So rather than being blocked or pulled in a direction because of food or body size. I love- oh, that's what I think of. <laughs> And, uh, and you've seen thousands of women achieve that. I have. I have. And again, you know, you've been doing this for 35 years. It's a I long get, time. I get emails uh, all, from all over the world. Um, and, you know, I have lots of clients that I've, I've known that, you know, that have been recovered for easily 20 years. And I know them very well. I would know if they were secretly obsessing. Um, and so I know it's possible. And I think that message is so needed, especially um, in a world where there is still very much a view that says once you once you have this diagnosis or once you've struggled or experienced relapse again and again, you're condemned to being this way. So I think that narrative really needs to shift, and it is shifting. And I think. It's really important. I think that's one of the messages that um, I'm sharing in my podcast, right? Just through my own journey and through working with so many different people and hearing their stories and talking to you, hearing from your 35 years of experience that it's we're, it's, we're not saying, oh, you know, you're never going to have a negative bad day or a negative body image day because... We're all humans, women, body image, hello, right? But that you get the skills, you, that, that's no longer um, the, the, the person who's driving your car, 
Yeah, so I I think that's why the the metaphor that I've used um, for years has had an impact on that because it does introduce the idea that insight alone is not enough. You do need to develop skills, life skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I use the metaphor of the log, um, it helps people understand that. And so I love that story. <laughs> that metaphor. So you imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain. You slip, you fall in, you're drowning. You're getting pulled underneath the rapids and along comes a big log and you grab on. And that log saves your life. It keeps your head above water when surely you would have drowned. And eventually it carries you to a place where now the river is calm. And, and, and if you look over, you can see the riverbank. But guess what? You can't get there because you're holding on to the log. And so the irony is the very thing that saved your life is now getting in the way of you going where you want to go in life. Now, this is a metaphor I use to describe the eating disorder. It has served a function, Mm -hmm. a very important function, and it would behoove you to find out what that function is because that's not the end of the story, right? There's always somebody on the riverbank yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log, (laughs) and you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go of that log, especially if that's someone who loves you more than life itself or, or someone who's the top eating disorder specialist in the country. But, but I happen to believe that letting go of that log is not the best thing to do initially. Because what happens if you let go of that log, start to swim to shore, get halfway there and realize, oh, shoot, I don't have the strength to make it. That means you don't have the strength to make it back to the log either and you're really sunk. So I believe we all have a wise part of ourselves that will not, will not <laughs> let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. Yes, that's right. So what do you do instead? You let go of the log and you try floating. And when you start to sink, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you practice treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on. Mm-hmm. And then you let go of the log and you swim around it once, grab back on. Twice, grab back on. Ten times, a hundred times, two hundred times. Whatever it takes for you to have the strength and confidence to make it to shore, then you let go of the log. And, and that's what I meant about putting the eating disorder out of a job. You mm-hmm. have to understand what, what it's doing for you, not what it's doing to you. That's all apparent, right? And everyone's going to let you know for sure. This is what it's doing to you. But what's it doing for you? Because once you get a, a, the, the picture of that, and that's the meaning that I'm talking about, then you can find other ways to get that that don't require an eating disorder. And that's how then it'll always be an option, right? I mean, nobody's taken that option away from you. But when you've increased your repertoire for getting what it is you want in life, the chances of you choosing that option will be pretty slim Mm. once you've developed all the other ones. So along with that story that I love... Yeah, you talk about the most important skill that every woman that is recovering from an eating disorder or an eating difficulty needs to learn. And Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about how you discovered that and what that skill is? 
Okay. Well, how I discovered it again, I, I'm, I was in graduate school, and this is in the 1970s. <laughs> this was the beginning of the women's movement. A long time ago. Um, and, and assertive communication was a big part of that. And so I remember discovering, I was taught that in, in, in class. I mean, if I had it my way, every school would teach this, but it, it, it isn't, right? Um, and, and so it, it changed my life profoundly, mm. profoundly. Mm. And so I thought, oh, okay. And when I started working with folks with eating difficulties um, and teaching this skill, I found this was this alone. Um, was such a significant part of their recovery. And in fact, I've said, I've seen thousands of people totally, completely recover, but no one without this skill, no one. That's how important it seems to be. So what is it? Um, Well, first of all, uh, to understand that what eating disorders are essentially is a form of communication. You're communicating uh, they, they communicate for you and to you. Mm-hmm. So learning this skill is one of the ways you put it out of a job. So what assertive communication is, is it's, it's the uh, ability to identify, accept, and express your feelings in a way that honors your experience and honors the experience of others. Now, mind you, this is cognitive behavior therapy, frankly. That's what it is, because it requires that you, uh, first of all, um, you got to uh, identify what's the particular behavior that is stirring up these feelings in me, and then what is the specific feeling that behavior is stirring up in me, and then how can I communicate that in a way that is not blaming, name-calling, putting down, or um, just zipping my lips and not saying anything. Mm-hmm. So, so this is so fundamental because um, if you can put into words what you're feeling, then you don't need an eating disorder to do that for you, to either throw that up for you or to restrict for you or, or stuff it down. So, um, in fact, I'm, I'm almost done. I'm not there yet, but I'm almost done. I'm creating a, a self-study course on assertive communication Ooh. that should be available eh, probably in a month or so at Light of the Moon Cafe. That's amazing. Because I, I realized it's, this is so important. It um, uh, Without it, then you do a lot of white knuckling. Yeah. And the other part of it is, is that... With one of the jobs that an eating disorder can can do is it can help create a wall, right? It can create isolation. Now, when you think about what does it do for you? Well, it's keeping you safe in situations that you don't have the skills for dealing with. So you have this, this wall. The problem with a wall is that it also imprisons you. Mm-hmm. Whereas once you learn how to communicate and create boundaries, that's a different story because the boundaries are permeable and you get to decide, oh, in this situation, I can be really open. Hey, in this situation, I better be a little more protective of myself. With this person, I can just say anything. Hey, with this person, I better choose my words carefully. Those are boundaries. Assertiveness helps you with that as well. Mm. I, I cannot agree more. I think that skill of learning to identify and acknowledge how you're feeling without judgment is something that we're never taught as people. No. In fact, it's constantly modeled um, to us around us that 
um, this self-critical, self-judgmental way of being, and and I think especially for women, we are not very good at setting boundaries. We often take this role as a caretaker, saying yes when we really mean no, um, and especially when we. And if someone has a history of being invalidated, right, by their environment, like you first talked about in the beginning of this talk, then assertiveness becomes like a say what? What what is assertiveness? And it stirs up from the people that I see. I can see it stirs up a lot of anxiety and fear. You mean I have to I can express what I want and say it in a kind way and that's not rude? So. But here's the thing, though, um, and this is what trips everybody up, I, I, everyone that's learning how to do it, is you think that, oh, okay, if I assert myself to this person, they're going to change their behavior. No. <laughs> no, that's not the goal. But everybody wants it to be the goal yeah. because we have this belief that if life behaved itself, then we would be okay, right? If oh. only that person would stop, blah, 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 then I'd be okay. And this is why, in a way, it's good news. You don't need anybody to change in order for you to recover. You don't. And the goal of assertiveness is not to get them to be more understanding, to be more accepting, to be more loving. To, to No, the goal in assertive communication is so that you are expressing your feelings and, and through words rather than through eating behaviors or thoughts. Mm. That's the goal. So the goal is finding your voice. Um, but, you know, a lot of people think that, okay, I'm either going to be the bully or I'm going to be the victim. And it's like, what assertiveness does is it, it offers a third way. This is a way that you can find your voice without having to either put someone else down or put yourself down. Mm. I think we can have an, a whole podcast about assertiveness <laughs> and all the different dimensions to it because there's just so much. And I love what you said about how eating disorders are, you know, they it's a alternative way of communicating your feelings really like you're putting all of all of those feelings i think feelings is at the core right emotions of um what we see in people who are really struggling with, with their eating well especially because we're relational beings so you're not going to be able to live a rich fulfilling joyful life in isolation yeah. And yet it's hard being with people sometimes if you don't have the skills, if you don't have the skills that allow you to be yourself and participate in relationships at the same time. Mm. And so assertiveness teaches you how to do that. And so as you're talking about that, I remember you were talking about this in one of your previous talks and I was like, ooh, this is so good. You talk about the two um, innate drives that we have as human beings, one for um, attachment and one for belonging and authenticity. So I think it would be great if you could expand a little bit more on these little gems. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so it helps you understand where the pain comes from that that um, eating disorders, we're using eating disorders to try to distract ourselves from or to numb or to, you know, uh, cover up or whatever. There's pain there. And, and so 
understanding these two drives helps understand where that pain comes from. So we're born with two very strong drives. One is the drive for connection and attachment, which is really, really important because we're not lizards. We don't hatch out of an egg and just go on our way. No, we're mammals. And we have to attach with our caregivers in order to survive, right? That's how we get fed and cared for. And, and because we're human mammals, that goes on for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there is another equally important, equally strong drive. And that is the drive for authenticity. That, that has to do with your destiny. Who you as a unique being Um, are destined to become in life and where you're destined to go. Now, what happens though for all of us as we're growing up, these two drives come into conflict. And when they do, guess which one wins? Attachment. Have to, right? We it's necessary for our survival. And so, um, but the problem is, is we can develop a pattern of choosing attachment over authenticity over and over and over that we carry into adulthood when attachment is not so critical. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, give you a simple example of what this might look like. Let's say you're a little kid and you want a cookie and your mother says, no, we're having dinner in an hour. You can't have a cookie. And, and you go, I want a cookie, I want a cookie, I want a cookie. And your mother says, you don't cut that out right now, you're not going to get any cookies. Okay, I don't want a cookie, right? You've chosen attachment over authenticity. You've pretended you don't want the cookie because you need attachment. You need that relationship. So, so that's a small way it can happen. But it all, in depending on what someone's circumstances are, there are other there are all kinds of ways this can happen. So the problem though is. Whenever you choose attachment over authenticity, it creates a pain that is so great that you will do anything to try to get rid of it because it it just keeps growing and growing and growing each time you make that choice. And so this is, you know, this is the pain that's beneath any kind of um, um, addictive behaviors. It could it, it could be eating disorders. It could be substance abuse. It could be anything where you're just trying to get rid of the pain. So again, going back to <clears throat> assertiveness, assertiveness is a way of cultivating your connection to your authenticity mm. and alleviating that pain. Mm. So now we're getting down deep into the roots of what's driving the disordered eating behavior. There is pain. It's somewhere buried down there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I know we don't have the time to go go, um, into the details of how we can, you know, the different ways of getting to the root and ways of just cutting that root out. And, And of course, everyone is on their own unique timeline when it comes to that. Right. So before we were you going to say something? Well, I was going to say, yeah, it's com- complex, but it's it's totally doable. And um, that's why I created this online course at the Light of the Moon Cafe. In fact, the new Crescent Moon course, uh, I'm not sure when this is airing, but at the end of, of this month, it's going to be starting okay. up. And that's, it's like, it's an eight. So I have several courses. Some are self-study where you just do yourself whenever, but the interactive ones are um, 
eight weeks of daily activities in a lot of different modalities. So it might be, oh, this week we're reading chapter seven in Eden by the Moon. And then the next day um, will be a poem about that concept. And there's a forum and everyone communicates on the forum and I'm on the forum responding mm. to everyone's comments and questions. Then there might be an audio recording of that story because some people learn better with audio. Then there might be story questions where people um, find out, okay, how does that relate to my life personally? Mm. Then there might be um, a metaphor around that so to access that part of the brain then there might be a playlist of songs to listen to so the idea being that you can get you can get to these issues but it really does help to hear the voices of other people that are also exploring this because that's what oh, yeah. you know as a therapist we know how many times have we thought oh my gosh I wish that other client could hear what this one just said <laughs> so I created the cafe so that's what happens people can really either go, oh my God, she took the words right out of my mouth or, oh, I never thought of it that way. Mm. So there, there's ways to explore that. Yeah. And I, and I love that there's um, like an international community on there. Yeah. And I think oh, yeah. that that helps so much because you feel so alone when you're really yeah. in the, in the, when you're in it, right? You're like, I must be crazy. I must be the only one who's feeling this way. So yeah, that's why this is the, to get that kind of connection. It's essentially it's sort of like a combination of a workbook for eating the light of the moon, or a book club, or a woman's circle, and then a lot of people take what they're getting from that into their individual sessions with their dietitian or their therapist um, to explore a little deeper. So the the idea that you're not alone with this. Yes. But it's easy to say, oh yeah, you're not alone. But when you get to hear the other voices. Wow, it's awesome. And that comes down to the idea of stories again, right? When you hear someone else's story, it's like, what? You too? Kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's very cool. Yeah. And so the mm-hmm. stories in your book, right? There's so many different stories that are so beautifully written. I've just always been curious, where do these stories come from? And were they, you know, of course they were informed by your upbringing, your clinical experiences, but were they informed by any of your own experiences with body image and food? Well, I I, I like to say the stories find me because it has to have a resonance. If I hear a story or I read a story, I go, oh, whoa, (laughs) Um, that's my clue that, okay, there's meaning here. And what I've discovered, here's what's really cool is these stories, some of them, they've now been able to do this research where they are able to break down the words, um, are 6,000 years old, 1,500 oh, years old. Beauty and the Beast, 6,000 years old. 6,000! So you figure, wait, why? If these stories have been passed down mostly through oral tradition until you know the last couple hundred years, um, then, then there, there's some importance there about the experience of being human. And what I've discovered is these stories are coded with amazing amounts of wisdom that people got burned at the stake for, people got imprisoned for. The powers that be did not want everybody to know this. And so uh, one of the ways I've discovered, and, and you might see this for yourself, is whenever a story has the number three, 
That's a signal. You know, three princes, three wishes, three golden apples, three. That's kind of like a signal. Oh, there's something here. So uh, for me, the stories, these old, old, old stories, it's fun for me to read them and decode them. I'm, I'm in the process of writing another book. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm just, what I, all I'm doing is when a story finds me, I don't know why. It, it connects with me. But then I start to follow the story and go into it more metaphorically. And it's, it's amazing um, the wisdom that's buried in them. Mm. The same within our own stories. There's, there's wisdom buried in our own stories. Mm. Um, recently, I've been diving back into this book, um, Women Who Run With the Wolves. I'm not sure if you've read that that one. Yeah. And we were writing about the same time, yeah. Oh, because when I was reading it again, I was like, oh my gosh, this, like her writing reminds me so much of Anita's book. Because she talks mm-hmm. about um, how stories are like, um, they carry so much archetypal energies and they're like, they're like really wise mothers who are pregnant with the, these wisdom um, sources of wisdom that's not available in traditional sources of knowledge. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it brings in the more indigenous ways of knowing. So important. It's not simply um, looking at the facts and 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 what's the matter. It's getting to the heart of the matter. Mm. And so, for me, that's where the real healing lies. Mm. Because if you're just getting rid of symptoms, it's like whack-a-mole. It'll pop up someplace else. Yeah, yeah. But if you can get to the heart of the matter, there we go. Mm-hmm. You heal that piece, you're good to go. Yeah. Well, Anita, I know you have to go um, <laughs> about around now. But my gosh, um, I'm just so happy to have you on. I never thought that I could do this because I read your book when I was a teenager struggling with an eating difficulty and woo, the stories just blew me out of the water. I've given several of these books to my friends, used your stories in my clinical work. So thank you for being here with me. And yeah, lots of gratitude and appreciation. Thank you, Natalie. It's been a pleasure. All right, Anita. So I guess we'll have to end it here, sadly. <laughs> Until next time. Until next time.